Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Chad Rosen from Victory Hemp, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Yeah, delighted to be here, Neil. Chad, so I am super curious about hemp um, as a crop. I'm very interested to learn more about it and why we don't talk about it enough in the plant-based food space. Uh, But generally, when it comes to food and agriculture in the U.S., why... um, we have such a twisted history with the crop itself. So maybe that might be a good place to start. And, and, and it, it'll be a pretty broad question. But to the extent possible, can you give us a short lesson on the history of hemp farming in the US? Uh, yeah, sure. So <clears throat> hemp is, no pun intended, woven throughout the history of um, the, the, the birthing of, of the US. It was said to be a commodity that um, that settlers were um, required to grow. George Washington grew it on his farm, um, and it was really for uh, the prosperity of our country in wartime efforts that it was grown. It used to be used for uh, cordage and um, and sails on our naval vessels, and uh, it has tremendous uh, benefits as it relates to the fibers. That's really kind of why it was utilized by our um, Navy um, up until the 30s. And it was actually made illegal um, in, in the 30s. Well, let's let me back up. It wasn't made illegal. It was um, a tax was placed on it. Um, it was called the Marijuana Tax Act. And that essentially drove it out of extinction because it cost so much for farmers to grow it. So uh, the real kind of um, reason it came back was during um, World War One. the USDA was faced with the challenge that they couldn't get rope for their naval vessels that was strong enough to keep boats in port. And the naval admirals were saying, hey, we need hemp back. And so the USDA wanted a major campaign and, um, and produced a video called Hemp for Victory. You can actually – you can actually Google it, Google Hemp for Victory uh, on YouTube, and you'll see this USDA-produced um, infomercial, essentially, that's asking farmers to, to grow grow hemp for the war effort. Um, and so it came back for a little bit then, and, um, and then it, it, it went back into um, being confused with uh, marijuana by the federal government. Uh, Anslinger at the time was the drug czar for um, what is now 
the DEA and he essentially said this uh, this crop is 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 uh, going to get people intoxicated um, and so they threw it all in the same bucket they couldn't define cannabis as being different um, in its THC content um, which is how we define it the difference between hemp and marijuana today. Uh, and so it was kind of due to this irrational um, misunderstanding of uh, what the constituent differences were of one compound in the plant that it all got bundled into um, one, um, one, one jail cell, so to speak, and it became illegal and eventually found itself on the um, Controlled Substances Act up there as dangerous as as, as, as cocaine and heroin, um, and that was kind of its 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 sad history, and it sat um, you know under the potato basket the hemp seed did, the cannabis seed did um, for the last eighty years. Uh, in twenty fourteen, uh, legislation was introduced in Washington as part of the twenty fourteen Farm Bill that authorized processors and producers to grow hemp under research provision as it was defined by the U.S. government and the state legislatures to modify their constitution to define hemp as different than marijuana uh, in that any cannabis sativa plant that had less than 0.3% THC, which is an arbitrary man-made designation, was essentially hemp. Anything over 0.3% THC tetrahydrocannabinol was defined as marijuana. Um, and the reason it, it kind of was driven out of, um, driven by legislators out of Kentucky was because the constituents here in Kentucky had a long history of growing hemp. Kentucky uh, at one point was providing two thirds of the country's hemp. Um, it was a leader in production. It was our second largest cash crop. Um, we were seed producers that shipped planting seed to um, Minnesota and Wisconsin to be uh, grown and redded and turned into cordage for war efforts and industrial uses. And uh, constituents of the, 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 the administration in 2014 here in Kentucky um, were reminding Jamie Comer who was at that time the secretary of uh, commissioner of agriculture here at the Kentucky department of agriculture, that their granddaddies grew hemp. And they said, why can't, if we're not allowed to grow tobacco, we need a replacement for tobacco. Why can't we grow hemp? We have a history. We know how to grow it. I've got a setting on my, on my, my drill that's meant designed for hemp seeds. And so he brought this proposal um, essentially to a couple really, um, conservative Republicans, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. And um, then they got some congressmen, Yarmouth and um, Massey and others involved. And legislation kind of ran from there. Um, and in 2014, there was a section in the Farm Bill that said if states want to adopt legislation that reflects uh, the definition of hemp being anything in the cannabis sativa family with less than 0.3% THC, um, you can grow it and you can process it and you can research it. Mm-hmm. So a limited amount of, um, farmers and processors entered the marketplace, 
uh, to figure out how it would fit into the rotation. And it was made legal. Um, there were three states that immediately changed their legislation to match Washington's definition. And that was Kentucky, Colorado, and Oregon. Um, and that's, that's uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that's soup to nuts. That's, that's, <laughs> I left a bunch out. But. No, that was very useful. Uh, just so that I, for my clarification, and and just maybe I should know this, but I don't know it. But so the the um, the hemp plant is is just a different breed with just less THC, or is it just a using different parts of the plant that doesn't have THC in it? Well, I would say it's it's a it's a different group of the genus Cannabis sativa that has. Uh, a lower amount of one um, phenotype in its makeup, which is this cannabinoid called THC. So it can essentially, when you look at cannabis plants, you can, you know, they can look the same, smell the same, harvest the same plant. All the other phenotypes can be the same, but it's just this one thing that you're looking for. And the truth is, over the life of the growth of the plant, the content of THC varies dramatically. Mm-hmm. In the early stages, there's hardly any THC. And at the end, it begins to kind of go up like that hockey stick curve. So the, um, if the plant is, um, is, is, is bred or if, if, it, if that's one of the phenotypical traits of the um, so if you harvest it at different points, you can get different results. All I have to say, um, it's, it's just one phenotype. You can find it across any variety and some varieties won't even tell you accurately whether or not it's a plant that produces, um, excessive amounts of THC is, uh, in, in, you know, at any certain point in time. So it's, it's, it's somewhat of a convoluted mm-hmm. point, um, and designation, but the data shows us that. There are certain cultivars. Um, there's about, I want to say, 40 that are certified in Canada. Um, and we have a number of cultivars that are certified here in the U.S. and in Kentucky um, and designated through OASCA, the American Association of Seed Certifiers, that have lower than 0.3% THC at the point of harvest. And... Those are cultivars that we can rely on um, to meet federal standards, um, which then in turn decrease the amount of risk associated with getting a test that would prevent you from bringing your crop to market. And so insurance programs are written around cultivars that are um, that we're fairly certain are going to meet the, the federal thresholds and state um, thresholds. Got it. Right. And, you know, it's crazy to me that uh, a, a plant that had so much versatility in its applications from use of the fibers for textiles, for you can use it at insulation, it's been used in biofuels, it's, it's, it's had a long, rich history of the material applications of the plant to be so um, sort of lumped into this confusing category many years ago. But anyway, it looks like we're hopefully on the right path now. Uh, so let's not let's not dwell on the past. How did you get interested in in hemp farming? What was your background prior to 2014 when when this changed? Uh, yeah, I think that you know everything that you just mentioned was 
fairly true to me. There's um, a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, um, written by a guy named Jack Herrera. And he kind of went through all the applications and uses of how hemp can be, is and has been utilized um, for society uh, and humanity and how beneficial it is from the seeds that provide us tremendous nutrients to um, the provide the, the, the fibers that can um, uh, clothe and shelter us uh, all the way to the leaves and flowers that can provide um, relief from stress and anxiety and pain. Um, and I said, this is, this, this is the sort of uh, systemic change that we need from a crop, right? We need, we need, we need to shake up and introduce, uh, an additional, um, crop to the rotation that farmers can grow, uh, in concert with the crops that they're growing today that has the ability to scale across the 180 million acres of row crops that we produce in the U S today. And I think if you look at what other, uh, value crops have there, there, there aren't many that, um, plants that that provide the versatility and diversity, as you you use the term, um, that uh, hemp does provide, and that knowing that that really the the chap that it, it's just it's such a magical um, equation for an entrepreneur to get involved in, or anyone who's curious and anyone who's kind of mission oriented and wants to make the world a better place. Um, it's such such a exciting project um, and commodity to be involved with because you're never going to get bored, you're never going to get tired. You're, the the challenge is enormous. Um, the impact is immeasurable. Potential impact is immeasurable, um, and the challenges are, are 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 yours to face every day. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it, it, to me, it was this cornucopia of, of, um, challenging, you know, being presented with a puzzle that I knew would always keep me, um, really engaged and excited and on the right path, um, to provide a real impact, a positive impact, um, that, you know, we need in, in, in the world today. So, so yeah, that all, for all those reasons, it just lined up as something that I was, um, ready, willing, interested, excited to dedicate my life to, um, to, to, to doing. And, you know, I, I work to live, I don't live to work. So, um, I knew that, that I had to, I had to dig in pretty deep and, find and, something that I would get motivated for. And you obviously took a big leap and, and relocated to Kentucky to actually pursue this endeavor because of the, the change in, in regulations in, in 2014. How did you get started? Like, where did you even begin? And um, tell us more about like the first couple of years as you yeah. were trying to figure out which particular, because as you, as we've both discussed now, the plant is pretty uh, diverse and versatile. You can use it in all kinds of applications. Um, how did you initially decide on the, the either the seeds or, or perhaps the oils is where you began? How did that become the choice? And, and tell us about the early years and then take us to where perhaps you are now with victory hemp, uh, and its various product applications. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I was essentially doing the SWOT analysis. The SWOT analysis involved, um, you know, what I was going to do with the hemp plant and where I was going to do it. Uh, 
and, and where is in the location, the physicality of it. That's a really important part of, you know, just generally starting a business, but even more so when you're connected to agriculture and you have acute resources that you have to measure and um, are going to drive a lot of your cost outcomes. So that was the, 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 the question you asked was related to which part of the plant though. And, and um, you know, early on I said, okay, basically fiber, food or medicinal, right? Um, fiber, I crossed off the list for a number of different reasons. The strengths in fiber are, um, clearly the product is, uh, has tremendous value in the marketplace. Um, and it's enormously scalable. There is, I mean, we're talking about replacing petroleum and fiberglass and, um, construction materials, concrete, cement, rebar, automotive paneling, plastics. It's, it's, it's a drop in replacement, uh, to just an egregious amount of, or an enormous amount of, of, of industrial materials. Um, one of, and, that, and that's really its strength and, and opportunity. The, the challenge, um, is that the industry was not very well established. The margins are fairly low and, um, it's, 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 it's a, um, the, the volume that you need and the penetration of the current market and the development of fibers for products was in its infancy. Uh, I didn't see much of a market that was turnkey drop in being easily adopted and ac- accessible. Um, and so I said, that is a project that's going to take a lot longer to get started. It's just going to take an enormous amount of capital to bridge the divide between uh, getting your CapEx, getting your supply chain lined up, and then figuring out your product market fit. And I guess the product market fit, because I don't have a material engineering background uh, or manufacturing engineering background, um, was, was, gave me the biggest pause. So cross that off the list understand the value of it, but heavy lift. The medicinal side of it, um, I had, I thought was really interesting. I saw, you know, this was around 2014. I, I really started looking closely or 2000, yeah, 2004, 2013, 2014. Um, and there was some companies that had made a lot of noise around CBD. Charlotte's web was the leader in that. And it was just mind blowing how uh, children with this uh, ho- these, these these horrible ailments, epilepsy, Dravet's syndrome, um, could utilize cannabis oil um, made from hemp plants to uh, help them live a better life. I thought that was just tremendous, and so I looked into that really closely, um, and I I immediately kind of got the impression that it was going to be overrun with a lot of. Uh, companies and competitors. And, and I knew that there would be a lot of opportunity for bad actors. And I thought it was really in kind of murky regulation. And so I said, you know, I don't think that's really, I don't feel real comfortable in that area. I'm not a doctor and I can't really speak fluently to it. Um, but I said, you know what? I eat three meals a day and I like hemp parts. I've been eating them for a long time. And there's an established market. If you go to Whole Foods, if you go to Kroger, and this is 2014, if you go to Costco, there's there's hemp parts on on the marketplace, and no one really eats them. You know, like they, they they're there, but you know, it's a small market. 
but it should be a much, much, much larger market. And um, there is an opportunity for a supply chain to grow here to 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 um, expand the the volume. And so I looked at that as an opportunity to add um, increased value uh, to an already uh, established market that was fledgling, but at least had a toehold um, and some understanding, had clear market fit, um, had established price points, and was fitting into solving one of the challenges that you know is is more acute today than it ever has been in my lifetime um, that I can remember as widespread, which is um, food security. It's it's an ongoing and growing issue, um, and the way we eat is um, we're realizing. Uh, having more of an impact on uh, our resources, and, um, and for all those reasons, I thought it was it was it was the land that I chose, which was yeah, hemp, hemp food. And when you got started, were you you were obviously partnering with farmers in in the Kentucky yep. region? Uh, and your goal was to set up a manufacturing facility or a processing facility. What was the? I didn't know what plan? the hell I was going to do. Honestly, <laughs> no, like it was such a fool's rush in move and uh, and a, an the bold fate. move though. But totally. <laughs> it seems to have it paid was, off so far. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was really born out of um, what I thought I was going to do was so, so. So first off, I was in California at this point. And I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Where am I going to do it? And decided it was going to be food, and then said. We, we said, um, let's, uh, let's, 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 let's go to Kentucky. I saw some news article come out about farmers in Oregon and them worrying about cross-pollination with their crops. And we were worried about that. These farmers were worried about cross-pollination and they started making threats to this farmer. And I said, okay, that's, that sounds crazy. Like, I don't, I'm not sure how if I want to be cross-pollinating my neighbor's crops and making enemies. It's already kind of crazy to start a business that's that we know that's challenging we know starting a business in an industry with murky regulations is even more challenging like having my neighbors upset with me is something i just didn't uh, that was a bridge too far so i thought the same logic might apply to colorado where they had legal marijuana so i uh, i said kentucky's the place to be and as i said i, I wasn't really sure what i was going to do i knew that there weren't any hemp food pro i thought there weren't any hemp food processors or agriculture processors that could help me any kind of co-men that could could do the work for us. So um, I knew that there would probably be some elements of manufacturing, but I knew that there wasn't going to be much of a, I didn't think there was going to be much of a supply chain. But when I got to Kentucky, um, it was, and the, the, the way I kind of got here was I went on landandfarm.com, which is a website that lists ranches and farms. And um, I put an offer in on every farm that had more than 50 tillable acres, had a house that I could get a mortgage on and would accept um, a, um, would accept um, the condition that I received a permit to grow industrial hemp, mm-hmm. which is probably a pretty odd one for the, <laughs> the sellers of these different. And like a couple farms agreed to, you know, the, 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 the offer. Um, and, uh, and one of them, you know, I, so I went on a visit to some of these farms and one of the, and so I visited a place, I visited one in Henry County up in Newcastle, uh, which incidentally happened to be the home of, uh, Henry County happened to be the home of Wendell Berry. And I was meeting with the, uh, the, uh, real estate agent said, he said, man, you got to talk to our judge executive about this project. He said, this, he, he, he's a business guy. He'd really like this. Uh-huh. So I went, I met with the judge executive and he said, look, like, you know, you are a fish out of water. And <laughs> some people might even call you a carpetbagger. <laughs> they weren't nice. 
and you're going to need some friends here in Kentucky. And I'll tell you what, if you locate your project here in my community, create some jobs, um, and let us grow it, I'll, I'll go to bat for you. And I said, all right, cool. I got a, I got a, I got a, I got a friend in, in the, in, in the fight. Um, so the judge, the judge executive Henry County turned out to be a tremendous ally for victory in the early days and put an option on a piece of land up there to build a manufacturing facility. Um, eventually had to walk away from it cause we didn't get funding in time. Um, but you know, they also introduced us to a bunch of farmers and the story there was that you know, they, they, they were looking for a replacement to the tobacco, right? The tobacco buyout had, had gone sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers got paid out for not growing tobacco, but needed something to transition into. And hemp kind of fit that, really hit that hit that perfectly. So they said, you don't need to buy a farm. Put your money towards marketing and, and converting these agriculture commodities into products that the market will buy, right? And so it was really clear. I, I did have a manufacturing background, so mm-hmm. I, I kind of understood equipment and um, throughputs and um, and 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 um, yields, etc. And so that uh, that led to we got some seed imported in 2015. We grew our first crop. Um, I bought some wheat, soy, legume processing equipment. The from you know the, the capital for that came from I sold you know my my uh, my one my one residential asset. And then we did a friends and family round. I also did a crowd fund on Indiegogo and, uh, you know, kept, kept expenses low. The judge executive put me in a, uh, an old, it was an old law firm apartment on the second floor of this one blinking stoplight town right across from the courthouse. And I lived there for three years and, uh, it was, it was, it was, this, yeah, it was just such a crazy place. And, um, and I lived there and, and we locked arms with, um, three farmers that manage six different, uh, plots in, um, in Henry Shelby and Oldham County. And we grew that first crop and I processed it on that, uh, wheat and soy and legume equipment and, and started selling at the farmer's markets. Um, and that was it just hand to hand combat uh, every weekend, just understand what people liked about the hemp hearts, the hemp protein, the hemp oil, what they didn't like sampled the heck out of people suffered the poor jokes about how, um, am I going to fail a drug test on Monday when I go to work? Am I going to be able to drive home after I try your samples? All those. So suffered through a summer of that. And then at the end of the summer, it, uh, we had to, we, we had to go indoors cause the weather started to roll in and, um, we got picked up by whole foods, Kroger and a bunch of rainbow blossom, natural food retailers in the area. And, uh, and we had, we had a, a brand on store shelves for a while. Um, and at that point, we uh, saw our, our co-products building up because we weren't really selling protein and oil. Like, protein and the oil have some challenges from a flavor perspective, um, but the hearts were moving like crazy. And we had more and more little broken bits of the hearts, which are the kind of fines. And so I said, I got to figure out what to do with these because they're they're really adding up on our, our P&L as, as waste and contributing to our cost of goods and lowering our gross margins. And so... Um, I brought it to a guy in our network who was a car who had, who had been at Cargill for like 20 years in their innovation division, Dr. Jagannath Sagibolu, who's our chief science officer or chief science um, advisor today. And he developed some samples on the bench top that we sent to um, some of the big uh, plant-based burger companies that, that are publicly traded, you know, behemoths of the world. And they said, 
these samples are amazing. They vibrate really well. Um, they have really good mouthfeel. The flavor is neutral and and can't can't even hardly notice it. Um, can you make more of them? And uh, and we said, yeah, we'll get back to you in four years. <laughs> we didn't say that, we said, but we realized that that would be our next big um, hurdle. And it, it was at that point, though, that we received that that feedback from the behemoths of the market. That was the aha moment of the business where we said, OK, I called up Whole Foods and Kroger, um, told them that we weren't you know, pursuing retail B2C anymore. It's a lot of work. B2C, I, I have so much respect for all the CPGs out there. They're doing um, doing the hard work. I mean, that was my real thought when you brought up the fact that you had a product in stores. That in itself is uh, an achievement. And then to have to, to to after making that move to pivot to maybe a bigger idea, but perhaps a longer timeline, sec, your second bold move, I suppose, amongst many. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, the the, the the hemp was legal, right? So yeah. it was getting all this free press in 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 the papers, and hemp is legal. Hemp is back in America. Hemp History Week. Like, it was it was really happening at that time 2016 was mm-hmm. 2015 16 17 um and so retailers w- were taking advantage of that and having a local brand that was reintroducing hemp to their store shelves that was grown in u.s soil was like it was consumers loved it the retailers loved it we were getting end caps we were moving product it was great um we were introducing it because people were like oh it's legal now like and you mm-hmm. can eat it here like this is great so um, it was a tremendous time, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, going back to what the thesis of why we're doing this, it was what, how do we get a scalable impact and the challenge, and we, we still joke about like how many hemp parts can Americans sprinkle on their salads or put in their smoothies, right? It's just a limited amount. What we need to be doing is being, um, in being in the center of the plate on all three meals. And how do we do that? We become an ingredient that people don't necessarily know about they just know that these products the, the the brands that are making the products are doing them the service of feeding them healthy nutritious products that they absolutely crave right and we mm-hmm. we saw the thesis of okay we can create products that people absolutely crave love and makes them healthier at the same time leveraging that power of the market to have a really big impact in the supply chain so um, we knew what we had to do early on. It was just, how were we going to do it? And that revealed itself to us, um, a little bit later. And, it, you know, and, and it, that, that was, that was a totally retooling of our team, right? Like we didn't need retail CPG sales guys. And mm-hmm. we didn't, we, so we didn't need demo folks and we didn't need little small pouches. So we had to retool our manufacturing line we had to build an R and D team. We had to get, you know, we had to get location with labs. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, whole whole new whole new adventure, whole new ball of wax. Can you give me a sense of like what are the products now, and who are the customers that you either currently serve that maybe some of us have eaten the products and don't realize that they contain ingredients from Victory Hemp, or what are the ones you're trying to get into? Like, give us what was the timeline when you had that initial thought about a pivot? I think that was 2015, 2016, to when you eventually. Um, we're producing a line of B2B products or ingredients that you can potentially incorporate into various food applications and, and possibly others. We were always, you know, selling to basically whoever gave us a PO. So, so we were doing a little bit of B2B before that. We just leaned into it heavy and like our website, you know, changed to start talking to formulators so they 
could understand how to utilize our ingredients to make their products better. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of what we do today. But so some of our earliest adopters and, and B2B customers um, were, uh, were like Patagonia Provisions, who does a seed mix. Hmm. Um, they're roasted seed mix. You can buy that on online. It's absolutely delightful if you're, you're, you're headed out on the trail this summer. Um, be sure to pick up a, a case of them and keep them in your, your pouch. Um, they're mixed with like lentils from timeless seeds in Montana and, um, and, 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 and oats and they're just delicious. Um, they have, they have a couple different flavors. Then, um, Dr. Bronner's was one of our, um, great clients, great customers that partners that we absolutely, um, are, are, are in love with. Um, they are such a great example for a small company like ours. Um, and others and how to treat people, how to treat your supply chain, how to treat the environment, um, and how to, how to lean into it, um, and, and meet your customers expectations and leverage the power of the marketplace to do good in the world. So, um, they've always been until, and, and, and still are a tremendous customer of ours. Um, if, if any of your listeners haven't picked up Dr. Bronner's, they should, they should go today get some it's, it's and this product. is it is it the hemp oil that's being used or what's what's the yeah, they're ingredient hemp, yeah they're yeah we they use our hemp seed oil mm. they use our hemp seed oil in their soaps in their um in their in their um lip balms mm. probably some of the, their other products they have a pretty large suite of products but they use it in some of their mainstay products um who else uh I think Foods Alive uses our products. They've always been kind of a good customer for us. Grounded Foods is uh, doing cheese replacements. Um, as I said, some of the big burger companies have been using our products, and um, and we've been trialing with a lot. Our challenge right now, I, I would say, is just our capacity is pretty small, so we can't really entertain the big burger companies, plant-based burger companies that need a minimum takeoff agreement of a million pounds a year, mm-hmm. right? That's, that, that, that's basically 10 years worth of production, um, for us today. So, um, and it exceeds what is in the supply chain in terms of acreage. So it's, it's a major, um, it's, it's a major, um, uh, hurdle and milestone that we have to, to, to get over increasing capacity in mm-hmm. order to be able to, to supply products that, you know, or, or your, your, your listeners can basically go down the street and buy everywhere. But Dr. Browners would be one that they can buy today. Patagonia Provisions, I think, um, is available to most, most, most folks. Maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about the potential applications in, specifically in meat alternatives and cheese alternatives, um, because, and, and, and the reason why one would choose hemp uh, I mean, I, I get the sustainability reasons. I see you supporting sure. American farmers, all of that. You're do- doing way better than most other products are or ingredients are doing today. So that's we can we can touch on that a little bit. But um, let's talk about the applications first. Can we actually see a potential future where you're eating a plant-based chicken nugget or a burger that's made entirely of hemp protein? Yeah, I, I that 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 reality is. Um, the reality of that statement is only limited by our ability to produce it and supply it. Um, in terms of the formulative characteristics, uh, the legality, the availability, it's the availability that is holding that um, scenario back. So 
and let's just be clear, traditional hemp proteins and oils are not really favored by food formulators or the general public because of the pungent taste mm-hmm. and green color. Um, and that's just a result of the way it's processed, right? So traditionally, and we used to do this as well, is we would take the hemp seed and we would run it through an expeller press and it would grind up the, the shell, which is 50% of the weight of the seed, which has all the polyphenols and tannins and chlorophyll and grind that up into the protein and the oil. Um, and your protein becomes, as I said, kind of pungent. It doesn't taste so good because what you're really tasting and, and you can get it up above 50%, maybe to 65%. What you're really tasting is you're tasting all the shell, the shell mm-hmm. bits. You can break them down, but they're still there. Um, and so what we did was we came up with a novel process um, that, and it's a process that comes from the heart. So it comes from the heart of the hemp seed, which is the endosperm. If you're looking at a sunflower seed, look on. If you know what a sunflower seed looks like and its architectural makeup, then you know that when you take the shell off, you get the kernel. In a similar fashion, you take the shell off the hemp seed, you get the heart. Um, and the end result when we separate the oil and the protein is what we call V70, which is upwards of 80% protein. Um, or upwards of uh, between 75 and 80% protein, and a V1. These are our trademark names for these products. And they have tremendous functional characteristics. Um, the proteins, when they go through high moisture extrusion, fibrate really well, the proteins, which is, means the, fi- the, the proteins kind of line up in a fashion like, 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 like muscle fibers would. Um, they uh, are uh, – go. They hold water and oil very well, um, and uh, they go into um, different applications across a variety of categories um, in a way that, uh, that 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 adds value to a lot of those products. Really good baked good baked products as well. Um, the V one is uh, very light mild, neutral flavored. It doesn't have that color. So it goes really well in cosmetics, um, as well as, uh, most topical applications. What is, what is next then for you? I mean, it sounds like you've, you've, you've gotten to the point where you've developed these sort of novel, um, ingredients out of, uh, hemp seeds that have a variety of applications. Uh, but it's clear that you're facing a bit of a supply chain challenge right now and it seems like the issue isn't uh that the that the product doesn't work the issue is really how do you scale this up and do it in a responsible way while also um finding new applications for these products since we're talking about food let's maybe touch on the nutritionals a little bit like would there be any advantages of using hemp versus pea protein or is hemp seed oil uh a better choice in certain products or applications, especially in food. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Right. It's, it's, it's not the best application for every product. Um, but it's, it is the best application for some, uh, best product for some applications. Right. Um, and I think that goes to any ingredient, whether it's sunflower seed oil or pea protein. Uh, some products have better applic- uh, attributes in some applications than others do the way I kind of look at it is that, that, you know, grandma's meatballs were best because they were a combination of pork and beef. That might be an offensive, um, (laughs) offensive (laughs) analogy to some people listening, but it's, that's, I think what the 
that the, the, the future of plant-based foods looks like it's peas and hemp working together in a plant-based chicken nugget because hemp's a little bit low in lysine and it's really high in the sulfur amino acids, cysteine and methionine, where P is really low in cysteine and methionine, but it's pretty high in lysine. So you get a, you get a, you get a PDK score of one perfect protein, similar to egg whites, right? Um, I think those are kind of the, 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 you know, that's one example of, of, of a combination of how proteins can kind of work together to be beneficial. Um, the flavor profile in hemp is very, very mild where, uh, in pea, it can be a little bit stronger. And so you blend those together and you get a bit of a milder flavor. So all these things kind of play into what, um, what ingredients you're going to use to achieve an end product. I think the same is, uh, the the same, the same story can be, um, exemplified in, um, in, in, in the oil side of things for frozen desserts. Maybe you want some kind of mouthfeel that you're getting from a coconut oil, but you don't want it to freeze hard solid. And so you need an oil that's going to, um, stay, uh, in a viscous state at a lower temperature, Hemp seed oil and part oil is ideal for that application. So a blend of uh, coconut oil and hemp seed oil. And I think that's, you know, that, that kind of reflects what we need to see in the supply chain as well um, from a crop rotation standpoint. Just diversity is better. I, mm-hmm. I mean, there aren't many places where that statement doesn't hold true. Um, I think some of the great features and benefits of hemp relate to its nutritional aspects. So, um it, 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 hemp oil specifically uh, is known to improve um, heart health. It has a specific balance of omega six to omega three of three to one, um, and the omega six uh, has is 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 a really kind of rare form of omega six. It's called gamma linolenic acid, um, which is commonly referred to as GLA, um, and it's it's found in very few edible sources, but it has amazing. Uh, benefits to, to health and can improve cardiovascular conditions and help to lower negative cholesterol while also increasing um, beneficial cholesterol in the body. Uh, it's got the right balance of saturated fats to help the body function normally, um, hoping, you know, it, which, which is an ideal way to prevent heart attacks and strokes. Um, there's, 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 a lot of different uh, beautiful applications or, or, or nutritional benefits um, from from the oil. Um, I think you know the one thing that I think is is, is always really interesting um, is that the magnesium uh, has has uh, has different qualities um, on the enzymes and hormones that induce sleeping. So um, there's a report that was done by the American Geriatric Society. Uh, serotonin is released when magne- magnesium is administered. And there's a lot of magnesium in, um, in hemp and that, it, it, that magnesium, it travels to the brain and becomes converted to melatonin, which is uh, a powerful sleep aid. So a single serving of hemp seed contains almost 50% of the daily recommended dose of magnesium. So, um, so, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's enormously helpful for a number of reasons. Um, hair and skin are improved, um, by incorporating hemp into your your diet as well as um, topical applications, you see improved skin conditions that are related to dermatitis and eczema, inflammation, psoriasis. All these things are are, are aided in 
um, when using hemp seed oil on a topical uh, application. Um, there's studies that support that the gamma-linolenic acid content of hemp seeds works to regulate um, uh, thyroid and pancreas um, uh, hormones, which can you know, result in all sorts of symptoms that relate to imbalance and menopause, mood swings, depression, anxiety. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's, that's, that, that, that the, the nutritional benefits from hemp are, are, are long lauded by, um, by, by nutritionists around the world. And I'm certainly not a nutritionist, but it doesn't, you don't have to dig that far to understand, um, all the places where hemp can be really valuable to incorporate into your diet. There's some, there's some work being done by a company in California, um, called Brightseed that's essentially, um, helping to prevent, um, fatty liver disease, um, which is found in the holes. And there's, um, populations of centurions in China, uh, where you have towns that have been eating hemp seeds in their diet for, um, centuries and centuries, and, and they live to, to be over a hundred years old. Now, obviously there's a lot of factors that go into that, the, a long life, but certainly a diet plays a, a large part in that. But, you know, like, like a lot of stuff, there's, there's, there's science and there's ancillary evidence, um, that, you know, you can, you can, you can dig up that, that, that will support a lot of the claims and, um, proven benefits of incorporating hemp seeds into your daily diet. So I think, you know, that's, that, that's something that everyone can do real quick to, to help themselves. I was an early believer in, in hemp seed hearts. I, I remember this was probably back in 2014, 15, uh, seeing them at Whole Foods somewhere. And, and I, I still occasionally buy it. I tried hemp protein early on, was not a fan. <laughs> yeah. I also did, it didn't compare, it didn't have enough protein in it for me to tolerate the taste. And I generally don't consume protein powder. So I was just trying products back then. So here's the real thing, right? So we... Let's zoom out a little bit and, and look at the state of our, our food industry and our food system at the moment. We know the facts that we need to do something to produce, what, 40% more food in the next 30 years or something. And we're going to have at least 3 billion more people to feed. And it's clear that the way we are doing industrial farming today and the majority of the bulk of the calories people are getting is through industrial livestock production I think you know this. Uh, we don't need to repeat it, but basically, it's terrible for the planet. It's unsustainable. It's going to cause. Uh, it's not only going to make our challenges with climate change worse. It's also going to cause food security challenges uh, two, three decades down the line, or sooner, according to some people. So we know the need for us to to shift towards a more plant forward food system being critical, um, but also. You know, so that's the first statement. I guess the second statement to that is, in the longer term, we've got to find more sustainable uh, sources uh, of ingredients that will constitute these products, whatever they may be, that we need to encourage more people to eat. And so uh, we talked a lot about nutrition. We've talked about applications. Um, the story of hemp also, it's 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 kind of sad, going back to the, the beginning of the conversation when you mentioned uh, when and how hemp farming, industrial hemp farming was made illegal um, or taxed in the U.S., which basically, in effect, made it illegal or, or, un, or sort of financially unsustainable for most farmers to get into. The sad part about it is hemp was a way more sustainable crop compared to anything else it was competing with. Even if you look at, if you look, actually, you go back to early 1900s, 
uh, hemp was starting to emerge as a source uh, for paper production and compete directly with the timber industry. This is late 1800s, early 1900s. We would have had a way more sustainable source of many material applications at this point had we allowed the industry to continue to grow instead of putting an end to it in the 1930s uh, with a slight resurgence in World War II, as you mentioned. So anyway, it's, we've made a lot of mistakes, and we've generally done that in our farming system. We've become over-reliant on a few commodity crops, um, and most of that tends to go about 47% of soy and 60% of corn, I think, ends up going as livestock feed. So we need these changes to happen. But it sounds to me like the new hemp industry and new hemp farming initiative is still very early stages. Uh, what? How can we... So firstly, tell me a little bit more about what you've learned about the sustainability of the crop. I know it uses less water and less land, but um, I'm sure you can tell us a lot more. And then what is it going to take uh, uh, for us to create a real supply chain in the U.S. that can help this emerging industry sort of shift, at least not entirely, but at least diversify and include more hemp in it? What's it going to take to make that happen? Um, yeah, I think that... Um, I think, I you know, that was... There were a lot of good points you made in there um, in the, to the question of what it's going to take. Um, you know, what, one thing that I, I would I would say is that as it relates to animal agriculture, I always like to we have a slide on our deck that, that kind of you know points to agriculture as being a significant emitter of greenhouse gases, and it those numbers continue, we continue to see those numbers rise as opposed to fall like the transportation sector um, or the energy sector rather. And the, um, you know, but the point I like to remind people of is, is, is it's, it's, it's not the cow, it's the how, right? And I think that, um, that, that we could probably point to um, some really uh, problematic agricultural systems that, we need to uh, modify significantly in order to reduce their impact, their negative impact. Um, but there's also some really good agricultural systems that bring 400 in the U.S. bring 400 million acres of production agriculture to market every day, um, and we leverage you know the skills and assets of farmers and farm workers to um, to, to, to to feed ourselves every day. So we want to take we want to take advantage of you know the the, the the, the good and, and, and leave behind the bad. Uh, and hemp is a tremendous opportunity, I think, for all the reasons that we've talked about, um, to introduce a new tool to uh, our, 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 our belt of solutions. Um, but it could be as poorly managed and brought into the, it could, it could, you know, we could, we could, it could be GMO'd by the wrong groups and stakeholders and um, be, you know, be designed to have transgenic genes that have Roundup Ready and BT um, uh, in, in, in its, in its, as a transgenic crop. And that's not the way we want to see it go. We, want, we don't want to fight weeds with, um, with, with, with chemicals. We want to fight them with good rotations. Um, we want to fight them with good crop uh, rotations. And, and we want to increase the amount of food that we're growing um, per acre so that we don't have to um, have such uh, pressure on, on, on weeds and, 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 and crop diversity. So I think that um, having a more efficient agriculture system is incumbent on all of us um, to work towards. And it's going to take 
willpower and it's going to take reminders and it's going to have take education for everyone to kind of be speaking um, towards the, the necessity for um, diversity in, in our crop rotations. Um, I think that, you know, to speak a little bit to just how it, there's a benefit from an agronomic standpoint, the, the easiest and most low hanging and obvious places, uh, another crop in the rotation. I mean, that is the low hanging fruit. Like, you know, there's your 10, 20% gain, um, to break up pest cycles, to break up weed cycles, to, um, have a crop that has a different root system, right? That root system is uh, tremendous and it's different than corn, soy, canola, wheat, in that it has a really strong taproot. And that taproot, in some cases, in some land areas, will uh, it, it'll, it'll break up a hard pan. And when that happens, what you're seeing is you're seeing nutrients uh, being brought up from deeper levels in the soil to the surface where they get left behind because we don't pull them. The, the roots up, um, but it also creates um, the root holes that uh, water is able to travel down into. So you're able to, to retain more water when there is a moisture event in the area. So the root system is really, really, uh, I think, a key feature to just the architecture of the plant going into um, into the ground and, and, and a reason to grow it. Other than that, it, it will canopy. If it gets established, it'll canopy really well, which crowds out weeds, which lessens the, the necessity for, um, for, uh, for pesticides. Um, and, you know, I think that we're really early in, um, the evolution of what the agronomy of hemp looks like. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, going to tell you that it doesn't need fertilizers because it does it needs to be it needs to be planted in soils that um, have good fertility because uh, it needs the same amount of nutrients that uh that almost corn does so it does need um, good fertility and, and you can achieve that fertility and good mpk with with chicken litter so you can do it in a um, organic manner or you can rely on um following a a, a legume crop or another crop that 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 that, that has um notes that um on, on the roots that um that, that fix nitrogen in the soil so there's a lot of ways that you can have um an inter interdependent crop and um also practice no-till low-till and you know supporting companies that are buying ingredients that reflect what you want to see in the world is another great way to do it i mean you can trust that dr bronner's supply chain is um is 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 vetted um, aggressively vetted, uh, and, uh, companies like ours who are supplying them, uh, are supplying them with crops that are coming out of regenerative fields or fields that are, um, organic and adhering to those standards. I think the standards of organic and regenerative organic certification are ones that we want to see more of. I think they're going to be difficult. I think there's going to be a transition. I think that there's going to be pullback on the curve to progress. Um, just like there is in the, the, the plant-based, meat industry right now. And I, I think that, you know, we see products coming to market right now, like the McPlant burger and McDonald's and, you know, that's a dog of a product. I don't know if you've had it, Bill, but it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm middle of the road. I, I, I'll, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, pull punches. Like I, 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 uh, I think Big Mac is a great sandwich, right? But I want a plant-based Big Mac. Because I like tangy sauce and I like the three buns, right? Like that's that that and and so if you gave me a plant based version of that, 
I think that we would see tremendous progress in people adopting plant-based foods into their diet as opposed to giving someone a McPlant burger that is uninspired, has three tablespoons of mayonnaise on it, has floppy lettuce and an unripe tomato that is just – it's putrid. So, you know, it's it's headlines like that that are dragging the stocks down of companies like Beyond Meat and – it's just noise. It's on. It's it's noise that is um, going to be lost uh, as we see um, more progress be made. Products that are more adapted to consumer demands. We go look at the slutty vegan in Atlanta. Those gals are killing it. They have tremendously delicious products. Consumers can't get enough of it, and they're expanding like crazy. And so the companies that don't adopt. They're going to be left behind. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not, but naysayers, um, you know, we'll we'll see that that, that you know they'll continue to see them. You can't, you just can't fight uh, consumers on what they want. So yeah, it's gonna it's yeah, it, it's gonna require changes on on all fronts. I agree. I mean, I think we have um, you have to build consumer interest and awareness. In fact, I think there's no. Lack of that, I think what we're doing is we're not meeting those needs in the most uh, uh, impactful way. I think we we sort of misunderstand this demand-supply equation right now in plant-based. Uh, I think there is a lot of demand. Uh, I think we are, we're using maybe even outdated data to meet that demand. And I think we need to understand that people, more and more people are choosing plant-based, but they expect... Um, the same level of flavor and satisfaction that they would get. And if they don't get that the first time or the first time they try it, they most likely are not going to come back and try it again. So I think, you know, that's, that's an issue I think that the industry was going to have to figure out. Um, and then of course there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of early stage companies now that are all, all trying to create very similar products, which I think isn't helping. Also, they're all kind of chasing the same um, sort of success paths that a few other companies took and i think it's i think those those roads are going to lead to dead ends for some of them um because it's competition yeah and that's just the nature of of strong survive exactly um but more on the farming side um what what do you think policy changes is what's going to encourage a shift towards uh more industrial hemp farming uh like what what where are you at right now given you've been i think you launched in 2016 um, how, how do you see this scaling up? For example, if tomorrow, um, just thinking aloud, McDonald's comes to you and say, Hey, listen, we want to incorporate your ingredient and create our own plant burger, sort of what they've already done, but I'm just throwing that name out as an example. What, how would you like, what's the effort being made to encourage more states and more farmers to shift towards hemp farming? What, what does it take to make that happen? Um, look, the, the, Make no mistake about it, agriculture and what we plant and what we harvest is excruciatingly contingent on what happens in Washington. The Farm Bill drives and the USDA drive enormous um, trends in uh, not only trends, but they support industry. They foster industry. Um, They help it innovate. They help it uh, scale. And right now... There's actually a lot of work being done around hemp. Believe it or not, 
you might think that the USDA and the federal government doesn't want to see hemp come into the rotation. But if you listen to Vilsack's address yesterday at Georgetown, uh, the four pillars of transforming our food system were like directly, I felt like he was reciting our business thesis for us. Um, so look, supply chains aren't built overnight, right? Like, especially in agriculture and what, with what we're facing today with supply chain shortages and with an agricultural landscape that is fraught with the wrong commodities in the wrong places in the world being controlled by the wrong, uh, power brokers is, is, is going to create famine. I mean, I don't know if you saw what the cover of the economist this week or last week. But this is something that every politician, every person running for office, every farmer, every farm worker, every eater is going to be faced with. Um, and, you know, the opportunity to solve this problem is not just Washington's. It's yours. It's mine. Um, but we do need resources to help us usher in change. Um, I would say that more attention being given to this topic on all channels, more legitimacy um, by good players and folks that have been on the sideline and it have maybe dismissed hemp in the past or not called the Victor Hemp Foods, <laughs> any formulator that doesn't know what, 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 the, what the protein in the heart of the hemp seed looks like and tastes like and how it formulates in their hemp seed. That's something that everyone can do, right? Educate yourself, get a firsthand look at it. Um, those are, those are some of the things that I think everyone can kind of, um, work towards, but I, I would encourage, I, I mean, I am encouraged, uh, as I see the USDA providing non-dilutive capital for businesses like ours in the forms of loans and grants, grants to do research and loans to build infrastructure. And those are some of the most important places that we need capital to flow. We need capital to um, present, um, to, 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 to ramp up genetics programs. Um, we need uh, support on the agronomy side. We need farmers to understand how to bring this crop into the rotation. We need processors to be able to convert these agricultural commodities into valuable food ingredients. And we need to understand what other uh, applications the hemp plant can go towards. There's, and there, there, there's a number of research organizations that are supported by the USDA and universities, land grant universities that are doing that really hard work. So I think a little bit of it is um, a, a little bit of it is time but a lot of it is support from the market and reinforcing um, this topic. I think that, you know, the, the CBD industry has um, done some disservice to hemp because people hear hemp and they think CBD. Uh, but there is a, uh, an entire universe of hemp that can fit into and benefit people's lives that mainstream media should be uh, taking an acutely close look at because there are just so many stories in the supply chain of companies, of products, of farmers that are all working together um, to do some amazing stuff. There's a company in, I don't know if you've heard of this company called Hempitecture in Idaho that's taking the hemp fiber and the hemp stock and they take the outside fiber and they weave it into insulation that has like an R value comparable to that pink, nasty insulation stuff that we have in our attics. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's like easy to install. It works absolutely perfectly. And then they take the herd, the inner part of the woody herd, and they, they supplant cement, which emits just an enormous amount of carbon dioxide in its production, um, to create blocks of what they call hempcrete. Amazing products. These are amazing products. And, and that's, that's one. There's a company in Western Kentucky that takes the stalks. We take the seeds off the top. They take the stalks and they press it into a hardwood floor that's as strong as oak. I mean, I'm not, it's, it's, I mean, this, there's, there's just tremendous stories out there across the supply chain that um, are touching people and in, 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 in reaching our everyday uh, consumption habits that, that, that I think that we're going to see more and more of. So just ask the questions and dig a little bit and you'll see, you'll find, find some great stories. Well, I'd like to close out with one very forward-looking question. Um, let's, if you look ahead to the year 2050, and if uh, things go in the direction you hope they are going to go with uh, both Victory Hemp and just the state of the hemp farming industry in the U.S., uh, what do you envision the food system to look like? Maybe start with the U.S., so you can go global, but I'll let you take it any way you want to. Yeah, so... Um... Ideally, it's a lot more plant-based um, and it's a lot more high quality. Um, there's a reduction of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Uh, we're seeing farmers get a lot more of their amendments to raise crops um, on farm um, or from organic sources. I think these are all, and, and which all um, go towards rebuilding topsoil. Um I think a lot less CAFOs, a lot more small processing meat packing facilities. We have a small butchers eliminating or reducing, dramatically reducing CAFOs. Um, more consumers eating, uh, forget about Meatless Monday, you know, it should just be meat maybe one or two days um, a month. Your ground beef should be plant based meat. Can't really tell the difference. I mean, Great, and you know if you need a steak, well, you know you don't need to eat steak every day. Eat it once a month. Eat it twice a month. Whatever. Um, so I think that I think that you know that's kind of those are some of the things that I, I where I see the um, supply ch- supply chain and, and, and farmlands going, and I, I see distributed supply chains is I think exporting these solutions to countries so that they can feed themselves. I mean, we are so woke right now with the war in ukraine you know how many people knew that two-thirds of the world's sunflower seed oil was coming from ukraine and russia how many people knew that 12 percent of all calories were coming out of ukraine and russia you know just 60 days ago um egypt uh syria they rely on ukraine and russia for 100 percent of their wheat i mean it's just it's it's absolutely insane how dependent some countries are um, on and how concentrated the food system has become. And I don't think it has to be that way at all. I don't think it has to be that way at all. And so, you know, we see, we, our business model has us putting our first flagship location is going to be here in the Ohio river Valley of Kentucky. And it's going to be fed by 50,000 acres in the Ohio river Valley. And then there's one in Europe, right? How about Sicily and Italy? where they grow wheat and they need a rotation because they don't have a rotation. There's no other markets. How about Senegal supplying Africa, high quality, um, nutrient dense ingredients. India just legalized hemp. 
Australasia. So distributed supply chains are food security, and I think that's um, really important as we have more and more bodies and mouths to feed. And, you know, in these developing nations where 25% of the household income goes to um, putting food on the table, there's just isn't room for hiccups in the supply chain or war in an increasingly uh, increasingly uh, challenging period that are, are as, as the world gets hotter and more crowded. Couldn't agree with you more, especially, I mean, on all of it, but especially the point about the need for distributed regional supply chains. I mean, it's, if we haven't learned that through this pandemic and now, of course, through the war that's happening in Ukraine, uh, I think it'll be a, it'll be a giant, giant loss uh, for humanity in the future, because I think this is a, this is the, you know, amongst many takeaways from the last couple of years, I think this one has become abundantly clear is like this consolidation uh, in the global food supply chain has really caused a lot of challenges and it, it is just not sustainable on top of it. So uh, the idea that you can you can scale a business still and, you know, there's ways to do and that's the hybrid model. You scale a business, but you make it um, make it happen regionally. So everyone you can you can make it more self-sufficient versus the centralized approach that we've kind of. Uh, fallen into, but only, frankly, in the last uh, maybe 70 to 100 years. So it's hopefully not too late to, to change that, but it's going to take a lot of work. Well, Chad, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I'm I'm definitely uh, a believer, as I said. I think uh, hemp is, is, is really a magical uh, crop, uh, a plant, and uh, I can't wait to see uh, what you do next with uh, Victory Hemp. Thanks, Neil. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And you know, I'd encourage you and your, your listeners to jump on victoryhempfoods.com and follow along with what we're doing. But pick up some protein and incorporate it into your baked goods at home or your smoothie or whatever it is that you're creating in the kitchen. And tell us how you love it. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.